we be using vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine for sepsis? So what's the real take-home point of this study? Give the drug. Fluids are not going to be able to fill the capacity of the venous system. I just think that we need to be over this. Does it help with mortality? What did that study demonstrate? The sicker you were, the greater the benefit. Kind of the way we should be doing things. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. I would venture to guess that many of us are very happy to be moving on beyond 2020. Not much has changed simply with the calendar date from December 31st to January 1st. We are still mired in our COVID pandemic, but with the advance of vaccinations as more and more providers and patients and the community get vaccinated, I think each day is another step towards the end of the pandemic. So we hope that you all had an opportunity to spend some time with those that you love and care about over the holidays, specifically those that were in your own households, not really having those large family gatherings and continuing to keep a safe physical distance amongst the holiday period. But it is a special time of year. We hope that you had a little bit of time to relax, recharge, and get into 2021. Now, as we have done every year for the past many years, our first podcast of the year is usually a look back, a look back at some of the key articles in the critical care, emergency medicine, and resuscitation literature from the preceding year. And we're going to do just that over the course of this podcast, hitting a few key articles from the 2020 literature. Now, there's no way we can do every article and there's no way we can do a deep dive into every article. So we're just going to hit the big ones that we think have some important take-home messages and those pearls with respect to articles that are worth knowing about from the 2020 literature. So let me bring in my amazing co-hosts here, Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Peter W., and Dr. Rob Rodriguez. Gentlemen, Happy New Year, and how are things going? Well, Happy New Year, Mike. And again, we're anxiously awaiting 2021. We've got positive news with vaccines, but at the same point in time, we have new peaks here in Louisiana for COVID and hospitalizations. Yes, same here in the Bay Area. We're not doing quite as badly, I suppose, as Southern California, but we are experiencing a surge and hoping that the vaccines will temper that over time. Yeah, guys, so in Philadelphia, we're doing okay for now, just kind of waiting to see the effects of the holidays, I suppose. But vaccinations are going out. In fact, our hospital system has administered, I believe, 20,000 doses of vaccine in the past month. So we're working on getting it delivered as fast as possible, which definitely offers a glimmer of hope for the early spring that maybe things will start getting back to normal. We'll see. Let us hope. And I think here in Baltimore, here in Maryland, we're facing similar numbers as to the rest of the country. Peter, you as in Louisiana, John as in Philly. We've hit record highs for hospitalizations and almost record highs for daily new cases. But we've also gotten most of our providers, most of our employees across our organization vaccinated. And even just today, before this podcast, I started seeing some messaging about vaccinating the community in Baltimore City. So certainly positive developments. 
And with that, we're going to turn to our first section here on our literature update. We're just going to cover three articles with respect to COVID-19. There have been tens of thousands of articles and studies published as we've learned a lot together over the past 10 to 11 months. But a lot of it, I think, is kind of settling down to providing supplemental oxygen, perhaps corticosteroids, maybe antivirals, and then just a few other therapies. So, John, I'm going to turn to you first. We're not going to spend a tremendous time on COVID-19. But with respect to supplemental oxygen, progressing from, say, nasal cannula, many of us have used high-flow nasal cannula. Is it beneficial? Any key articles from 2020 that we should know about? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. And I think one of the biggest swings we've seen over the course of our management of COVID is the aggressiveness in which we're providing or intubating our patients, which has a lot of implications from, you know, just patient safety as well as healthcare worker safety. So the best article that I found that talked about the use of high flow nasal cannula instead of mechanical ventilation was published in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care by DeMoule. It's a French study, but their objective was to determine if high flow nasal cannula reduces the intubation rate and mortality in patients with acute respiratory failure on COVID-19. Now, as a lot of the literature we've seen, slowly we're starting to see randomized trials come out, but this is a retrospective study, but of good numbers, almost 400 patients, and it was multi-center in four ICUs in France. They're adults over 18 years old and define respiratory failure as being tachypneic with a respiratory rate greater than 25, having bilateral pulmonary infiltrates on either chest X-ray or CT with the need of more than three liters nasal cannula to keep patients greater than 92% saturation. And obviously, these were COVID-positive patients. And what they looked at was the intervention of high-flow nasal cannula at a rate of 50 liters a minute versus standard oxygen therapy. And the primary outcome they decided to look at was the need for invasive mechanical ventilation. And then they also looked at 28-day mortality. And what they found was out of these 379 patients that they looked at, the median age was about 66 years old, so generally representative of our COVID populations with 50% having hypertension, 30% diabetes, and a number of other comorbidities that are commonly seen in patients presenting to us with severe COVID-19 infections. 39% of patients received high-flow nasal cannula in the first 24 hours of ICU admission, and they compared that to 51% who did not. And they matched about 137 subjects for this comparison. And their primary outcome was that high-flow nasal cannula was associated with a reduced proportion of patients requiring invasive mechanical ventilation, although there was no difference in 28-day mortality. So, I think that the take-home point from this study is that it highlights that high-flow nasal cannula was efficacious as a potential therapeutic option to reduce the need for invasive mechanical ventilation when compared to standard oxygen therapy in a large cohort of patients who had COVID-19. So I think this is probably some of the best evidence so far looking at the use of high-flow instead of going straight to intubation and mechanical ventilation. Outstanding. I think it's also a therapy that many of us are using as patients progress along the severity of illness, just needing a two or three liters ahead of mechanical ventilation. It certainly has become something we've utilized heavily at Maryland, I suspect, also in the West Coast with Rob and in Louisiana with Peter. Now, in terms of medications, we had the publication of the recovery trial 
in 2020, and it's led to many of us utilizing corticosteroids in the treatment of patients who require oxygen or perhaps mechanical ventilation in the setting of COVID. Rob, can you take us through the highlights of the recovery trial? Yeah, Mike, the recovery trial was really a landmark trial that almost immediately changed the treatment of COVID-19 worldwide. I don't know of any other study that has had such a broad, immediate impact on COVID or any other disease for that matter. Really, once this came out, I'd say within a day or two, most centers were responding to it and starting the use of steroids. So the objective of the recovery trial was to determine the effect of dexamethasone on outcomes in patients with COVID-19. It was a multi-center randomized trial at 176 hospitals. The inclusion for this study was broad. It was adults over the age of 18, and there was really very few exclusions for this trial. The intervention was a two-to-one ratio assignment of the intervention, which was dexamethasone at varying doses, versus the standard care, which was basically standard treatment without dexamethasone. And the dosing that they were using for dexamethasone was IV, six milligrams once a day for up to 10 days or until hospital discharge. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality within 28 days, and they had a number of secondary outcomes, including six-month mortality, time until discharge from the hospital, need for intubation, ECMO or death, and then some cause-specific mortality such as need for hemodialysis and duration of mechanical ventilation. So the results of the study, they had 6,425 patients enrolled, 2,104 in the dexamethasone arm and 4,321 in the usual care arm. The mean age was 66 years old. They're 36% female. 16% were receiving mechanical ventilation or ECMO at randomization and 60% of them were receiving oxygen therapy at time of randomization. In terms of the primary outcome, mortality at 28 days was significantly lower in the dexamethasone group than in the usual care group. It was 22.9% in the steroid group versus 25.7% in the usual care group. The trends showed the greatest absolute and proportional benefit among patients who were receiving mechanical ventilation In the dexamethasone group, the incidence of death was lower than that in the usual care group, receiving mechanical ventilation 29.3% versus 41.4%. In terms of secondary outcomes, dexamethasone was shown to be associated with shorter duration of hospitalization and greater probability of discharge alive within 28 days. And the risk of progression to invasive mechanical ventilation was lower in the dexamethasone group. The sole limitation of this study was that in the usual care group, 8% of them wound up receiving dexamethasone. So there was some crossover in terms of the study arms. So the take-home point is that the recovery trial provides evidence that treatment with dexamethasone at 6 milligrams once daily for up to 10 days reduces 28-day mortality in patients with COVID-19 who are receiving respiratory support. One of their other conclusions was that there was no benefit and the possibility of harm among patients who did not require oxygen. Thanks, Rob. Outstanding review. 
So in terms of our treatments, high flow nasal cannula, decreasing the proportion of patients needing mechanical <clears throat> ventilation, corticosteroids, also improving mortality in those that need respiratory support, but also importantly with the recovery trial, there seemed to be no benefit and maybe a signal of harm in folks who didn't need supplemental oxygen. So Peter, let me turn to you for our last COVID article here. Part of the additional medication treatments that we're looking at perhaps in addition to monoclonal antibodies, which is really a, a more recent hot topic, but it's been the utilization of remdesivir. What's the key article from 2020 that got us thinking and utilizing remdesivir, and does it help with mortality? What did that study demonstrate? So thanks, Mike. So the study on remdesivir, again, published in New England Journal, was great. This was 2020 by Beagle and Tomaszek. And so the objective to determine the efficacy and safety of remdesivir on the outcomes in patients with COVID-19. The study was a design phase three, randomized, double-blind, international placebo control. So what you're looking for in a study, adults greater than 18. And then they had to have COVID with severe disease as determined by requiring mechanical ventilation or supplemental oxygen with respiratory rates greater than 24. So you had to be sick with COVID. The intervention eligible patients wound up being randomized one-to-one um, -one ratio to receive either IV remdesivir. This is given as 200 milligram loading dose on day one, followed by 100 milligram maintenance dose on days two through 10 versus placebo. All patients receive supportive care as with the other studies we've talked about already. When we talk about primary outcome, the time to recovery defined as the first day during 28 days after enrollment, which patients met a pre-specified recovery category, either discharge or no longer requiring additional oxygen other than room air. Secondary outcome was the clinical status at day 15 using the same clinical outcome scale. So here are your results. Over 1,062 patients randomized 521 to placebo, 541 to remdesivir. Mean age was 59 years of age, 36% female. Medium number of days between symptom onset and randomization was nine days. 90% had severe disease at enrollment. So the primary outcome, patients in the remdesivir group had a shorter time to recovery than patients in placebo group, median of 10 days as compared with 15 days. So a game changer here, five days difference. In the severe disease stratum, this was 957 patients, the median time to recovery was 11 days as compared with 18 days. So the sicker you were, the greater the benefit. We look at Kaplan-Meier estimates of mortality by day 15 were 6.7% in the remdesivir group and 11.9% in the placebo. So if we look at secondary outcome quickly, patients receiving oxygen at enrollment, those in the remdesivir group, continued to receive oxygen for fewer days than patients in the placebo group, and the difference there was 13 days in the remdesivir group versus 21 days in placebo. So some of the limitations, just briefly, the primary outcome of the current trial was changed early in the trial from a comparison of the eight category ordinal scale on day 15 to a comparison of time to recovery up to day 29. So what's the real take-home point of this study? Give the drug. So remdesivir was superior to placebo in shortening the time to recovery in adults who were hospitalized with COVID-19 and had evidence of lower respiratory tract infection. So this is a game changer, something we should be using. 
Outstanding review, Peter. So in terms of the sicker end of spectrum of patients just prior to mechanical ventilation, using high flow looks to be beneficial, administering corticosteroids, administering remdesivir. Before we move on to a completely separate topic, let me just make the rounds with each of you. John, anything to add from a COVID standpoint from the 2020 literature? No, I think a lot of the other takeaways are more of a summation and kind of my interpretation of the literature that's out there. So, you know, mechanical ventilation management, it's reasonable to treat these patients like traditional ARDS up front. So your long protective ventilation strategies. If you have some advanced skills, you can certainly titrate your PEEP to driving pressure, but certainly keeping that plateau less than 30, less than six cc's per kilo, ideal body weight. These are all things that I'm doing in addition to trying to run them on the drier side rather than aggressive fluid resuscitation. But otherwise, no, I think that's about it. Great additional pearls. Rob, anything to add? I would add two things. One is, you know, the sort of resurgence of certain monoclonal antibodies that have been shown to improve outcomes, especially when given early. But my bigger comment has to do with journals, investigators, and overall response in terms of research to the COVID pandemic. The COVID pandemic, among other things, ushered in a new immediacy about publication, about getting information out there. And I think investigators, journals, and Editors should be commended for how rapidly they have responded to our need for literature, for information about how to attack this disease. I'm actually completing a study looking at that exact topic, and we have found that whereas the median time to get a journal article from submission to publication used to be about five to six months, for COVID articles, it was down to like 30 days or so. So overall, journals and scientists have responded very well to the pandemic. That's a great pearl, Rob. Thanks. And Peter, final COVID yeah, thought. Just one thought, and it's based on the first <clears throat> article we reviewed, which was the humidified high-flow nasal cannula. And again, I found particularly with our younger patients, they like the synchrony of humidified high-flow nasal cannula over a BiPAP interface. So I would go to that first to see if you can meet your treatment goals. All right. Well, let's transition away from COVID to some other important articles from the 2020 literature. John, I'm circling back to you. Now, we treat lots of patients with GI bleed. Unstable patients, probably the most unstable is a variceal bleed patient with massive hematemesis. And we also administer TXA quite a bit in terms of a number of conditions, whether that be in the setting of trauma, whether that be postpartum hemorrhage, epistaxis, we've used it a lot. I heard that something was published in 2020 dealing with GI bleed and TXA. Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So this trial was published in The Lancet. It was titled The Effects of High-Dose 24-Hour Infusion of TXA on Death and Thromboembolic Events in Patients with Acute GI bleeding, also called the HALTIT trial. And Mike, I have to say, this is probably one of the most impressive trials I've read in a long time, just in the fact that the number of patients they were able to enroll across the world is astounding. So I'll get to those details in just a minute, but their objective was to quantify the effects of TXA on death and VTE complications in patients with acute GI bleeding. And this 
as I said, was an international randomized multicenter, double-blinded, placebo-controlled pragmatic trial. So again, as Peter said, everything you want in a trial in 15 countries that included 164 hospitals across the world. And inclusion criteria were very clinical. It was adult patients where the treating clinician was substantially uncertain whether or not to use TXA for patients with significant GI bleed. So they're basically saying there's equipoise of using it or not. And if they're not sure, then let's randomize them to a trial, kind of the way we should be doing things. They defined significant GI bleeding as risk of bleeding to death and included patients with hypotension, tachycardia, signs of shock, or those likely to need transfusion or urgent endoscopy or surgery. So pretty straightforward clinical definition, I think. The intervention group received a loading dose of one gram of TXA that was given over 10 minutes, and that was followed by a maintenance dose of three grams that was provided IV over 24 hours. And then the control group essentially got saline in the same dosing kind of mechanism. Now, their outcomes were basically had a primary outcome of death due to bleeding within five days of randomization. And here's the results. So over 12,000, now I said that right, 12,000 patients were enrolled in this trial. So about 6,000 in each arm over the course of, I think it was about five years that this trial was ongoing. And when they looked at their primary outcome, they found no difference in death due to bleeding at five days. So this was like a 3.7 versus 3.8% in terms of mortality in the primary outcome. Now, in their secondary outcomes, they found no difference in death from bleeding at 24 hours or even lengthened out to 28 days, no difference in all-cause mortality. There was a similar proportion of re-bleeding, surgery, and need for other interventions, and no change in ICU duration. Now, they did note in their secondary outcomes that there are a higher rate of venothromboembolic events, and this was double. So obviously small, 0.8 versus 0.4% in the TXA group. And those were basically DVTs or PEs. So a small incidence, but a statistically different amount. Now, I guess there are some limitations, right? So the primary outcome was actually changed from all-cause mortality at five days due to, to death due to bleeding at five days to, I guess that was just a decision that the authors made. I don't know exactly why that was done. And then certainly the clinical diagnosis of GI bleed, whenever it's less objective, more subjective, there's going to be some variation in terms of the treating physician if they felt like it's a severe bleed or not. So I think there's some limitations here, but I mean, in 12,000 patients, that's pretty, pretty impressive. So I think the take-home point here is that despite our appreciation for TXA and trauma in terms of its effect on outcome, it does not appear to reduce death from GI bleeding and should not be used as part of a uniform approach for GI bleeding. And one other small point worth noting was that a majority of the deaths, I think it was like 75%, were due to upper GI variceal bleeds as opposed to lower GI bleeds or peptic ulcer disease, stuff like that. So the patients who often died were really sick to begin with to have bad portal hypertension and variceal bleeds as opposed to the other run-of-the-mill GI bleeds that we might see coming in the emergency department. Outstanding review, John. So the HALTED trial, an important trial from the 2020 literature looking at GI bleed and TXA. Great summary. 
Well, let me move to sepsis. I think every year we've been doing a literature update, there are always articles on sepsis. And while COVID-19 certainly dwarfed by many magnitude the other articles in 2020, there are a few important sepsis topics that I just want to touch on. I'll take this topic here and specifically regarding fluid choice, timing of pressors, and then adjunctive therapy in the form of vitamin C. So one of the articles that I think is worth knowing about was actually actually just published in CHEST, lead author was Jackson, and in essence, they're looking at balanced crystalloids in sepsis resuscitation for patients who actually had their fluid choice in the ED. So what this particular study was, was to evaluate the impact of sepsis outcome on fluid composition during the early resuscitation in the ED of patients with sepsis versus waiting to choose fluid choice once they got to the ICU. So this was a secondary analysis of the SMART trial. Remember, we reviewed that from the 2018 literature where the SMART trial was a single center trial out of Vanderbilt looking at the selection of balanced crystalloids versus normal saline in a broad cohort of critically ill patients. What they did with this particular study was look at the patients who specifically had sepsis within that larger cohort or data set for the SMART trial. And specifically, they looked at the patients with sepsis during the final 15 months of that trial when the fluid choice was done in concert between the ED and ICU and not when they got upstairs to the ICU. So of the 15,000 plus patients in the SMART trial, a little over 1,600 had sepsis and about 1,250 of those had sepsis and were randomized during those final 15 months fluid selection in the ED. About 800 of those got normal saline, about 475 got balanced crystalloids, and if you recall the SMART trial, the predominant balanced crystalloid was lactated ringers. They looked at 30-day in-hospital mortality, and of those patients, the take-home result was that 30-day in-hospital mortality was lower for those patients that were randomized and got the balanced crystalloid fluid early in their ED resuscitation. The 30-day in-hospital mortality was 24.5% compared with 30.6% of those who receive or randomized to the normal saline. In addition, some of their secondary outcomes all favored the balanced crystalloid group. So this was more ICU-free days, less time on the ventilator, less time needing vasopressors, and less time needing renal replacement therapy. Now, certainly a limitation of this paper is that that wasn't the primary outcome of the SMART trial. This is a secondary analysis and will require additional RCTs, but this particular paper supports a lot of things we've talked about in fluids, specifically with sepsis resuscitation, in that the use of balanced crystalloids, and at least based on this study, the selection of a balanced crystalloid, even in the ED, may have a greater impact on survival rather than waiting till later in the patient's hospital course to move from normal saline over to a balanced crystalloid. Now the next article is on the timing of norepinephrine initiation in patients with septic shock. And recall that last year we reviewed one of the trials, the sensor trial. Well, that was a phase two trial done out of Thailand to look if at an early fixed dose of norepi concomitant with fluid resuscitation improved shock reversal in patients with septic shock. 
This particular article was just published in Critical Care by Lee and entitled Timing of Norepinephrine Initiation in Patients with Septic Shock. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis to ultimately determine what was the impact of early versus late initiation of norepinephrine on clinical outcomes in patients with septic shock. So they took a look at and included all RCTs, prospective and retrospective cohorts that evaluated adult patients with septic shock, where those papers looked at early versus late initiation of norepi, and then also reported on short-term mortality which was their primary outcome. And that short-term mortality could have been either in-hospital, 28-day, or 90-day mortality. And overall, they found five studies, a little about 930 patients, and the take-home message was that short-term mortality, one of those three short-term mortalities, was lower in those that had epinephrine administered at an earlier time in their resuscitation compared with later, to the tune of 21.6% versus 37%. Now, in terms of some of their secondary outcomes, this also favored the early norepinephrine group in that those patients had a shorter time to the target map and an overall lower utilization of IV fluids. Now, importantly, in this meta-analysis, there was heterogeneity in terms of the studies included in that some of them considered early use less than an hour after diagnosis or presentation, some considered early norepi initiation within two hours of diagnosis, and then one of them went all the way out to six hours. So there are those limitations in the variability of what is defined as early norepi, but one of the take-home messages from this paper is that when you have folks on the sicker end of sepsis heading towards septic shock, it does appear that earlier initiation of norepinephrine may be associated with decreased short-term mortality, decreased time to hit that target map, and then overall lower utilization, less use of IV fluids. John, this is something you've talked about in terms of pressor angst. Peter, I think it's something you've also talked about in lecturing. Any comments on this particular article? This is Peter. I just think that we need to be over this, right? And so when we see septic shock patients, patients who are hypotensive with what we think is infection, as we're giving the first fluid boluses, we should be calling for norepinephrine mixed in at the bedside so that there's no delay in initiation once we've given fluid boluses. Because if we've given a fluid bolus and the patient is hypotensive again, as we're ordering our second fluid bolus, we should be instituting our norepinephrine. Yeah, I agree, Peter. And I think one pearl to take here is reminding our audience that this is a vasoplegic disease oftentimes. So if you notice that that diastolic blood pressure is really low, particularly less than 40 on your initial or subsequent evaluations, that usually means the vasoplegia is really, really bad and that fluids are not going to be able to fill the capacity of the venous system to generate a adequate blood pressure. So if I see a diastolic blood pressure less than 40, I'm thinking about early norepinephrine, which in general, I think is aligned with all of our evolving practice. Thanks guys for those comments. Let's move into the last sepsis topic and take it as a bigger term. 
And I think behind COVID-19, the most common topic published, I think, in certainly in sepsis and perhaps in critical care has been the utilization of this metabolic cocktail for sepsis resuscitation, vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thymine in the treatment of patients with either severe sepsis or septic shock. And much of this stems from that single center study in 2000, I think 17, published by Paul Merrick that demonstrated remarkable improvements in outcomes for patients at septic shock at his institution. And we've had a flurry of vitamin C literature here in 2020 from the vitamins trial to the Hyvictus trial to the Axe trial, and then some more recent ones. Rob, maybe let me turn this to you to just give us a high level overview of these studies and just really the take home point, should we be using vitamin C, hydrocortisone and thiamine for sepsis? Yeah, that's a great intro, Mike. This flurry of studies and attention to the vitamin C, hydrocortisone, thiamine type cocktail arises from, in some cases, desperate need to find something that will work in sepsis beyond antibiotic and our other standard measures. And so all these studies arose out of that one study that you mentioned by Merrick et al., which was a single site, not very well controlled study. And so suddenly a lot of investigators across the country or a lot of people across the country were just preemptively giving vitamin C, thiamine and hydrocortisone as part of their standard sepsis care. So a number of teams, in fact, I was involved at one point in one of the teams looking at this issue, decided to look into it. And I'm not going to go into the details of each of the four studies, that the four major studies that have looked into it, but basically all of them involve patients with severe sepsis or septic shock, delivery of this cocktail of vitamin C, thiamine, and some type of steroid, typically hydrocortisone, or at early phases in septic shock. Varying doses in these, but it was pretty much consistently high-dose vitamin C. All of the studies were randomized trials. Some of them were blinded better than others. One or two of them were open-label, but the other ones were randomized and blinded. And basically, the bottom line is that all of them found no evidence of benefit for vitamin C for this cocktail. Regardless of what outcome you look at, whether it was a hard outcome like mortality versus other less hard outcomes like ICU stay or clearance of shock parameters, duration of vasopressor use, really there was no benefit from the intervention. So I think that all of these studies combined kind of put the nail in the coffin of this cocktail. That's not to say that we should abandon hydrocortisone in other circumstances like hydrocortisone alone, for example, as an adjunctive therapy for vasopressor resistant shock. I'm still a fan of that, but this cocktail of vitamin C and thiamine does not carry weight anymore. Rob, that was a great summary of a lot of literature. And something I should have mentioned at the onset, we will have a handout for this episode that has a much deeper dive and a lot of detail for you on the specifics of each study that we've reviewed. We're just hitting the highlights here on our podcast. So please refer you to the handout for the title and link to those articles. John, I'm going to switch back to you here. 
Now, in terms of sepsis, let's broaden that a little bit and talk about just vasodilatory shock and the utilization of vasopressors. We're targeting a map, but for some conditions, you know, even some current international recommendations would suggest maybe in older folks, folks with chronic hypertension where their maybe autoregulatory threshold is set a little bit higher, maybe we should target a higher map when these folks have shock. But there's also some literature to say the longer these older patients are exposed to more vasopressors, actually the worse they do. Any literature from 2020 to help us kind of parse through this clinical question? Yeah, actually there was, Mike. And I think all of us were in that point where we're standing at the bedside looking at this elderly patient. And I'm going to say elderly, but they're older adults, to be honest. And your nurse is titrating up your norepinephrine, and you're really not seeing that much of a response. And you're all of a sudden, you're at like 20 mics a minute. And the patient's looking at you and, you know, kind of talking, but like they're on a high dose of uh, vasopressor. You're like, man, I wish I could just relax that goal a little bit. Well, this study by La Montagna and colleagues uh, was published in JAMA this past year and looked at the effect of reduced exposure to vasopressors on long-term, so 90-day mortality in older critically ill adults with vasodilatory hypotension. This was an RCT. And so their primary objective was just to see if a reduced vasopressor exposure had an effect on patients greater than 65 years old. And this was a multi-center pragmatic randomized controlled trial in 65 different ICUs in the United Kingdom. Now these were adults over the age of 65 who are ICU bound with vasodilatory shock and received less than six hours of vasopressor therapy and expected to need basically pressors for at least six more hours. These patients were randomized as two separate groups, either permissive hypotension, so this was targeting a map of 60 to 65, or the usual care group, which was a little bit more unique in that they were administered and titrated at the discretion of the treating clinician, which, you know, always kind of introduces a little bit of bias in there, but those are the two groups that they decided to compare. And the primary outcome was 90-day all-cause mortality. So overall, Almost 2,600 patients were included in this trial and about 1,300 in the permissive hypotension group as well as the usual care group, so they were evenly split. The primary outcome of permissive hypotension was achieved in 41% in the usual care group, almost 44%, which found no statistical difference in 90-day all-cause mortality between these two groups. And when they dove down a little bit deeper into the secondary outcomes, there were no difference in ICU mortality, difference in mortality at the hospital to discharge, no difference in ICU or hospital length of stay. So didn't appear to be all that much difference between groups of a map of 60 to 65 versus usual care. Now, there were some adverse events in the permissive hypotension group, about 6%, but if you look at the usual care group, they also had about 6% adverse event and no difference there. And in the chronic hypertension subgroup, so this is a patient population we've heard of before when looking at higher MAP goals, when they looked at 90-day all-cause mortality in the permissive hypotension group, it was 38% compared to 44% in the usual care group. So a slight difference there. So the limitations, obviously, I think one of the biggest that we always think about is this was not a blinded trial. So the investigators and the clinicians were able to see the patient's map. They had to know that. And the mortality patients was not adjudicated. So you know, if there was a debate about the cause of mortality or something like that, it was not discussed within the research group. So 
certainly could bias some of the result outcomes there. And one other thing to consider is whether or not the difference between 60 and 65. Now, granted, this was a larger trial of over 1,200, 1,300 patients in each arm. If it was still underpowered to see a significant difference between that small of a difference in mean arterial pressure. But again, ultimately, this was a fairly well-done trial with a large number of patients included. And the take-home point here is permissive hypotension did not reduce 90-day mortality in older ICU patients with vasodilatory shock. There was no increase in adverse events or harm and a signal that maybe those with chronic hypertension may benefit from a difference in MAP. Outstanding, John. Great review of the 65 trial, another key article from the 2020 literature. And Peter, bring us home here on our final article that we're going to talk about on the podcast, mechanical ventilation and something we love to talk about, lung protective settings. This is another study regarding the utilization of lung protective ventilation in the ED. I got to think after all we've talked about this and all everyone's talked about it, I'm going to expect the utilization is going to be 80, 90, 95%. Tell us about this latest article. Yeah, this is a little frightening, but still, it's a horse that we're going to continue to ride. Really looking in Canada to evaluate the relationship of lung protective ventilation and ventilated ED patients and mortality and duration of mechanical ventilation. The studies of retrospective analysis, eight emergency departments in Canada, the patients are adults greater than 18. They received instituted mechanical ventilation in the emergency department. They define lung protective ventilation as a tidal volume less than eight cc's per kilo predicted body weight, right? And so that's kind of loose there on that definition, but there you have it. The primary outcome here was hospital mortality. The results, over 4,000 patients, only 58.4% received lung protective ventilation in the ED. So that means, you know, in excess of 40 patients had tidal volumes greater or equal to 8 cc's per kilo. That's pretty frightening. Primary outcome, um, mortality in the lung protective ventilation, 26.6% compared to no lung protective ventilation of 30.6% and odds ratio of 0.91. Secondary outcomes, the lung protective ventilation group, no shock here, a lower incidence of ARDS, a shorter duration of mechanical ventilation, shorter ICU, and shorter hospital length of stay with results in lower mean total costs. So it was somewhat limited in these eight EDs. It's an observational trial. Plateau pressures were not often available or documented and no data regarding adjunctive treatment therapies for the patients. And then lastly, no data regarding the duration of ventilation at initial ED vent settings and how quickly those ED vent settings were changed. But it's important to note for the take-home point for this, lung protective ventilation was only used 58% of the time. We still have an opportunity to improve on this. Similar to other studies that use lung protective ventilation associated with lower hospital mortalities, lower incidence of ARDS, shorter duration of mechanical ventilation, length of stay, and all those result in lower costs. So again, think about lung protective ventilation in your patients. Outstanding, Peter. Yet another important article that drives home the point that we need to be paying attention to vent settings in the ED. 
Well, gentlemen, this has been enormously helpful. I know that it's typically longer as we normally do with our lit review other than our other podcasts, but I think we've hit some key articles here on 2020. And as I mentioned, there's no way to cover them all. And we have a few other ones that we put in the handout along with mentioned at the end of our handout. We reviewed that important article from Critical Care Medicine about boarding of critically ill patients and those mitigation strategies. I'll refer you back to that specific podcast. We talked about some additional things such as the updates in cardiac arrest guidelines published in October and November. That was a more recent podcast. Check that out for those updates to those guidelines. There's an anaphylaxis practice parameter published in 2020, some other procedure-related articles that we've linked to in our handout. So a lot of great stuff published here in 2020. And I can't thank you guys enough to getting us started really well here in 2021, reviewing some of the key articles we should be taking with us as we get into this new year, as we hopefully, with vaccinations, have opened perhaps the final chapter in COVID. Yes, we've got a rough and a bumpy four to six weeks, maybe eight weeks here. But my hope is that once we get into the mid to late winter, we're on the other side, uh, perhaps the last COVID surge. So My thanks to you guys. My thanks to all of you for listening to this podcast and for everything that you continue to do in treating patients afflicted with COVID-19 and any and everything you're doing on the COVID pandemic. Our thanks. We're looking forward to chatting with you during our next podcast. Bye for now.